Thank you, worship team. Boy, we've got everything this morning. Uh, channeling the Beatles on the first song. A little bit of jazz licks on this one. Psychedelic lighting. Yes. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome to Advent. Truly welcome to our first Sunday of Advent. We are uh, glad to start this season. It is a joyful season, and um, it's a, a wonderful time of the year for certainly all of us, I think. Um, our Sir, our, our title of our Advent season is A Christmas Confession. And by a Christmas confession, um, it's not a confession like, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus last night. It's not that kind of a confession. This is like the confession that Dan gave us this morning, a confession of faith in Christ. So um, as we begin, would you pray with me and we will proceed to uh, help us to understand what we are talking about. We thank you, Father, for the joy of the season as Dan spoke and the scriptures speak to us so much about the joy of Christ and the joy of the Lord is our strength to rejoice in the Lord always and again to rejoice. And we ask that we might sense that and truly understand that you give to us a great hope in the incarnation of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as we Try and understand what this confession means, what the what Advent is all about, what the mystery is, what godliness is, and what that means for our lives this Advent season. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, teach us and guide us. So we give ourselves to this task, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A Christmas confession. And our verse is this. Um, You'll see it on the screen. A common, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This morning, we're going to look at that first line by common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then the next three Sundays, we're going to look at the rest of this because it is all about the incarnation of Christ, how he came to the earth and what it was that he accomplished by coming and becoming a man. So this is First uh, Timothy chapter 3. And to give the context, I, I would like us to read that. If you have your Bibles, I know you just sat down, but turn with me to First Timothy chapter 3. And to understand the, concept, the, the context rather of 316, I would like us to read verses 14, 15, and 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. To give attention to the reading of his word, would you stand please and honor it in its reading. 1 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. 
If you're paying attention, you've noticed that we skipped pretty much all of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. We're not going to skip it. We were just looking ahead at Advent, and we see this beautiful verse that is perfect for us in celebrating Advent this year to talk about the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of the Advent, the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so we will come back in January and pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. We left off last week at the end of chapter 2, so um, we will give you some overall context in chapter 3 as we go along. But um, right now we want to focus on 1 Timothy 3, 16, this great mystery of godliness. But before we do, get into that portion of it. Let's just talk about Advent for a minute. What is the meaning of Advent? Uh, um, Some of you may not be aware of what the word Advent means or why it is we celebrate it in the way that we do. The meaning of Advent. The word Advent basically comes from a Latin word that means to come, a compound word. In other words, it means arrival. We normally think of the advent of something as uh, the arrival of a notable person, the arrival of a notable thing or an event. For instance, we might talk about the advent of the computer age. Some of you remember before the computer age, and things have changed since then. Some, we talk about the advent of the automobile. Doug Snook remembers that, that before the automobile came on, on the scene. Well, some of you might. He doesn't, but... But these are notable events and inventions that come into our world and change things. The advent for the church is this, the first or second coming of Christ. When we speak of advent, that's what we're talking about, the first or second coming of Christ. The advent of Christ, Christ coming into the world, was the most important event of all human history. Think about it. God becoming a man, this idea of incarnation, never happened before. The most important event because it signaled the beginning of redemption. The second advent of Christ, his next arrival will be the next most important event in all of history because it will be the summation and the consummation of all things in which he will make all things right by his work. So for us... We look forward to the second advent by celebrating the first. That's what we're doing right now. We look forward to the second advent of Christ. When we look back at the the first advent and we celebrate that he came and we're looking forward because advent gives us hope. And we live in a hopeless world, do we not? Do Do you read the news ever? Do you watch TV? Do you see what's happening around us? The world is hopeless. The world in still and silent darkness lay. And he is the the light of the world. The first advent gives us, when we look back on it and we celebrate it, it gives us hope for the future. There will be a fulfilled future for us and for all of creation. And so we look forward to his promise by looking back at his first advent. So my encouragement to you is this. Make yourself ready for his advent. Make yourself ready for his advent. And I mean this kind of uh, in in a dual way, a double entendre. Make yourself ready for Christmas, the day that we celebrate, but make yourself ready for his coming back. Both are involved. 
Make yourself ready. Be vigilant. It's only December 3rd. We have plenty of time for you to focus on on your heart between now and Christmas Day. We have plenty of time for you to seek the Lord. Historically, throughout the church history, mainly a uh, liturgical church uh, observant, but uh, the church has celebrated these four Sundays before Christmas, Christmas, calling it Advent. And traditionally, it was a time for prayer, for fasting... We, we, are, we use it as a time for feasting, right, between now and Christmas. But originally it was a time to, to fast and fast and fast. And then on the feast of Christmas, then you would gorge yourself. We do it for 25 days. Actually, we start in, in Thanksgiving, right? But it was originally a time of fasting and prayer and repentance and anticipation. We get that. But it's a dedicated time of seeking the Lord, and I encourage you to that, brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you, we want you to to experience and celebrate Christmas in all of its joy, in all of its abundance and substance, but you have to do that intentionally. It doesn't doesn't just happen. So I encourage you to do that. Um, So um, encourage you to... um, to seek the Lord while he may be, may be found in these next uh, 20-some-odd days. So that's the meaning of Advent. But what about the meaning of confession? Because he says in 1 Timothy 3.16, um, by common confession. And the title of our Advent series is A Christmas Confession. By common confession, what does that mean? It means this, that we say together, that's what the word means. When he says common confession, it is one word, and it means we say together. We agree upon these truths. We we say this together, so when we stand up and when we sing, we are saying things, we are confessing them to be true. When we read the scriptures together, when we we read them together, or when we, we sing the Apostles' Creed, for instance, I believe... We are saying what we believe, and that's what a confession is. We say these things that we believe, we say them together with one voice, boldly and unashamedly. So in the New Testament, there were a number of these liturgical statements. We call them creeds, hymns, and confessions. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means... I believe. So, for instance, the Apostles' Creed starts with, I believe in God the Father. I believe this. I believe this. I believe this. We did a series a number of years ago called, We Believe, based upon this. This is our creed. And a creed is a collection of beliefs that we hold as distinctives. And the scriptures have some of these short little creeds or confessions. For instance, in the Old Testament, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is known as an Old Testament creed, an Old Testament confession, because the Jews would say that repeatedly. They would come together and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's their confession of faith. In the New Testament, we have many of these short confessions as well. For instance, uh, here are some of them on on, on, on your screen. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
found in Mark three times. Jesus is the Son of God in John, 1 John, Acts, and Hebrews. We, we, we see those, and we don't think there's anything distinctive about them, but they were actually used in worship. Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Philippians. These short phrases are found throughout the New Testament, and the liturgy, the worship of the New Testament church would have been peppered with these short, pithy statements, this is what we believe. This is our common confession. We say this together. Some of these passages in the New Testament were well-known hymns in the church. Uh, the New Testament writers were not the only ones who were producing content in the day. There, there were other people that were writing things, and they weren't ins- inspired. And there were people that were writing songs. I mean, we sung some, I mentioned the, the, the songs that we sang this morning. They're, they're a little bit different. They're updated. But think about it. In the, in the time of Christ, uh, time of Christ and in the early church, there were people that were composing songs for the early church. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some of them were spontaneous. And, and they became traditional. And they were passed along from church to church. They became well known. And so um, the, some of them survived. It's like hymns today. You know which ones survive? The good ones. The old ones, the old, you know, the, 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 the stuff from the 1980s. We don't sing that too much anymore, do we? But, but, but music that is well-written and substantive and good, it survives. And some of these, the New Testament writers cited them, and they were recognized, and, and scholars believe in, in certain places that we have a portion of a hymn. And that's what scholars believe is our text that says, he who was revealed in the flesh was, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Scholars believe that's a portion of a a hymn, a larger hymn that they would sing in the church, and Paul is borrowing borrowing this, and it so becomes inscripturated by the Holy Spirit and part of our canon, but it's, it's different. You can just tell its structure, its literary elements, its distinctives. It's not just the normal way that Paul is talking. We see some of these in, uh, here's a list of possible hymns in the New Testament. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the the story of of, uh, the uh, humiliation of Christ. He he laid his his, uh, deity aside. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the exaltation of Christ. John 1, 1 through 18, it might be a hymn of the incarnation of Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, uh, the story of Jew and Gentile coming together as the building of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, the story of the resurrection of Christ. And our text today, 1 Timothy 3, 16, all thought to be hymns in the early church. So they were provided for liturgy. They provided an opportunity when someone was being baptized. What do you believe? This is what I believe. And they might say some of these things. Jesus is Lord. They they might uh, quote 1 Timothy 3.16 or some other hymn. So that is what the confessions are that we're talking about. But the context is important to understand this confession and here is the, con- the, the context in verses 14 and 15. We read it earlier. 
where Paul said, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. He's returning to his, his tone of the beginning of the letter. Timothy, I left you in, in Crete for this purpose, and I'm writing, hoping to come to you. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I am writing these things from chapter 2 onward, that you are to be praying for the mission of the church, praying for leaders, living in a quiet life and godliness. I am writing these things that, that men are to, to pray responsibly. They're not to be hypocrites and fighting amongst themselves. I am, I am writing these things so that women will live responsibly in the church. And in chapter 3, he's going to say, I am writing so that the leaders of the church will live lives of impeccable character. This is how you are to live in the church. And the connection is truth. Because he says, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is the content of the confession. The truth is the content of the confession. This is what we agree upon. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the common confession, the truth that we proclaim. So, two things. We must confess the truth throughout all scripture, but we must also live the truth. That's the point that Paul is getting at in verses 14 through 16. This is the truth that we believe, and this is how we live the truth that we believe. Our conduct and our confession, our behavior and our beliefs match. And that is what he is saying to the Ephesians at this time. We must confess the truth and we must live the truth. So that's the meaning of Advent. That's the meaning of the confession. How about the mystery? Let's look at the meaning of the mystery. And this is a little more, as it were, mysterious. Um, so he says in verse 16, by common confession, we looked at what a confession is. Great is the mystery. It is a mega mystery. That's what the word is. The, the Greek word translates or transliterates beautifully over into English. It is a mega mystery. And when Paul says, mega is the mystery, great is the mystery, he is introducing a sense of wonder and magnitude and importance and mystery and gloriousness and marvelousness of this staggering truth that God came into the world. When he says it's great, it's not any old mystery. There are lots of mystery. Okay, who took the cookies from the cookie jar? There's a mystery for you. This is a mega mystery. This is a great mystery, and it is the mystery of God, godliness. It is a mystery, and when he talks about, he said that the church is the pillar and support of the truth in verse 15, and this is the confession of the truth of which he just spoke. The word mystery, what is a mystery? We've seen this many times, and this is what it is. The great mystery is the once hidden plan of salvation. 
That's the mystery that has been revealed in the New Testament. It is the mystery of Christmas. 1 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 6, Romans 16, 25 through 26, etc. Because there are many verses in the New Testament that speak of this great mystery. And it is a mystery that cannot be discovered by us. We cannot dig into it and find it. We cannot think it out with our minds. It it comes to us by revelation, by divine revelation. And God reveals that secret by divine revelation. And Jesus is that revelation. And so is his word. So it cannot come to us on our own. And the mystery, therefore, if you look at these passages, is that God would come to earth in the incarnation. God would die in the place of sinners, and he would form his church of all people, Jews and Gentiles. That's a summation of what the mystery is. The Jews knew that a Messiah was going to come, didn't they? But they had no idea. Their thought of a Messiah was going to be a political leader. They didn't know that God was going to be the Messiah. I mean, he was really going to come and become one of them. And they didn't know about the plan of a cross of a suffering servant of of God incarnate, giving himself up to death for us sinners, they had no idea. To them, that would have blown their minds. That's why it was a mystery that God held as a secret. And he revealed it in the fullness of times when he sent forth his son, born of a woman. It is the unfathomable riches of Christ that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 3.8. So it is a, that's what the mystery is when Paul talks about mystery over and over again in the New Testament. But here he uses a phrase that he uses nowhere else in the New Testament, the mystery of godliness. Now what is godliness? Here's a quote from I. Howard Marshall. Godliness stands for the whole Christian existence viewed from the perspective of a life which is lived in response to the knowledge of God. Godliness in the pastoral epistles is the outward expression of our love and our devotion to Christ. It's how we live our lives. He described godliness in chapter 2, verse 2, where he said, We are to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then he picks up the idea of godliness in chapter 316, and he's going to talk more about it in the rest of the book. But godliness is from a proper knowledge of Christ. It's how we live. And so, what are we talking about? Is the mystery of godliness, is it the mystery of the incarnation, that God became a man, Or is it the mystery of our own godliness that we can somehow become godly? It is both. In Colossians 1, 26 and 27, 
The Apostle Paul says this, that is, he's preaching, he says, I'm preaching the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from ages past and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's mind-blowing. would have been mind-blowing for the Jews of the Old Testament. Messiah in you? That is a mystery. God in flesh comes and lives, and then he he not only lives on this earth, but he goes to heaven, and then he lives in us. That is the hope of glory, the mystery. So here's the big lesson for us. The mystery of the divine revelation of Christ's incarnation is the foundation for our godly living. We cannot separate our behavior from what we believe. We cannot separate our conduct from our confession. When we confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the mystery of godliness is that he lives through us that we would be godly to the praise and the glory of his grace. Jesus makes godliness possible. You cannot be good on your own. You cannot be godly without God. You can try all you want. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can have a nice Christmas and sing all the songs. And you can go to church and read and confess. But if you don't have Christ in you, the hope of glory, you cannot be godly. You will not be godly. So we are to cooperate with the Christ who lives in us and the spirit who dwells in us. Jesus makes godliness possible. So here are some Advent lessons for us, okay? The world longs for the mystery of godliness, doesn't it? The world wants it so bad. The world loves the mystery of Christmas They want the incarnation and all that it achieves. They just don't want to admit it. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, O little town of Bethlehem. The hopes and the fears of all of history, all the years of history, they are met in the manger. And the world longs for it. There is this longing within them for this mystery of Christmas. All the Christmas stories, all the movies, all of them mirror, in many cases, the great story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All, not all, but most of the Christian stories mirror that. And I invite you as a family to be looking for that theme as you watch movies and and, and think about it, A Christmas Carol. It's the redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge. It's a wonderful life. It's a redemption story. Elf. It's a redemption story. All of these, these, uh, these, these stories and these movies that we watch all of them in, involve some problem. The Grinch who stole Christmas, the, it's about creation, 
fall, redemption, and restoration, the Grinch is restored because it's a story of the redemption of the Grinch. And the world loves to tell the story. They can't help it because it is the big story behind all other stories. And, and, and music of the, the world desires to capture all of them, the mystery of, of Christmas. And there's a lot of good secular songs out there. And sometimes um, uh, people in the world write a lot better music than Christians do. At least nowadays they do. We have a, uh, we have a, a playlist that I made a number of years ago of songs that are it's a mixture of, of uh, traditional Christmas hymns, traditional carols, some, some jazz Christmas and some others. And there are two songs that I always am listening for in the background as that playlist is playing. One is a song called Walking in the Air by Celtic Woman. And another is Up Above the Northern Lights by Mannheim Steamroller. And they just capture this sense of mystery. But the words do not. They're, they're trying their best and they're doing a great job with the music capturing, capturing the mystery of the season but they miss the message. We have it. We have it. The world longs for it, and we have the answer to give to the world what is the meaning of the mystery of Christmas. We have it. Second of all, don't escape to the comfort of a cultural Christmas. It's easy with uh, decorations and food, and cookies, and movies, and smells of Christmas, and all of these things. Memories from uh, presents under the tree, singing Christmas carols to our family and neighbors. The smells of Christmas. I mean, after, ha- after Halloween, you walk into, you know, I remember walking into Safeway down here, and right in the, the entryway, I smelled Christmas, because they had those little cinnamon logs out there, and it's just a, and a distinct smell. And those take you back in memories, don't they? They take you back when you were a child. But be careful to, of the sentimentality of a cultural Christmas. Why do they give us comfort? Make sure that you are seeking the proper mystery. The mystery for us has been revealed. It's okay to remember those things. And it's okay to watch the movies and celebrate and decorate. But make sure that you connect them to the mystery that has been revealed who is in Christ. The last lesson is this. The mystery of godliness includes pain and suffering. We cannot forget that. Christmas is not just a reprieve from life being hard. It's not what it is. Christ came into the world to save sinners. We talk about that we're going to do the lighting, lighting the path this, this coming Friday. The path leads to the manger... And the manger is part of the mystery of the incarnation, the baby who was born to die. The good news of the advent involves the suffering of Christ. The manger leads to the cross and suffering. And the purpose of the incarnation was to take care of the pain that sin causes. Real pain. You feel it, some of you. 
For many, the holidays bring up difficult memories. For some of you, uh, this might be the first or second or third Christmas without a loved one, and you feel the pain of that grief once again, sometimes too painful to bear. There are hard truths about Christmas, and it, it dredges up for us sometimes the pain, but the pain gives way to joy. Amen? That's God's way. The pain gives way to joy. In Luke chapter 2, the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of mega joy. Mega joy. Which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior, savior who is Christ the Lord. The mystery of godliness revealed. To close, we're going to stand and we're going to say together this common confession. The worship team is coming up and we will say this together and then we will sing our final song. So would you read this out loud together with me? By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in joy.